1: Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Episode There are three theories. You are, I love how excited you are. You just love research so much. <laughs> what fresh hell? Laughing in the face of motherhood. Species will evolve to minimize competition. With Margaret Abels and Amy Wilson a podcast that solves today's parenting dilemmas so you don't have to. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And this week, we're talking about how can our kids be such total opposites? How does it happen? Amy knows because she's been,
0: she loves to research. She loves to get you guys the answers, but she went way down the rabbit hole and she's been texting me for like three days with fun facts and excited emojis about how excited she is about her research.
1: What I love about doing this podcast is I get to research things that I actually want to know about, right? Like this is just a question that I wondered. And we hoped that there'd be interesting research to answer the question, and there totally is. I was even telling my husband and daughter about it last night at dinner. Like, What did you hear hey, this? You're on
0: fire about this topic. You're like, everyone, I'm, listen,
1: it's, it's fascinating. Because y- you have said that you and I uh, are, were apparently made in opposite making machines. On, on many topics. On many topics. And so in some ways we're
0: similar, but there are definitely opposite making machines, especially our feelings about capers. Let's not
1: go back into it because that was a painful <laughs> chapter for us. So let me, let me just start by asking, is it, was it true in your family of origin that, that you and your siblings were completely polar opposites in, in certain ways? Yes. Me too. And how about in your kids, your own children, are they completely, how did they come from the same family? opposites? Yes.
0: In some ways, of course. I mean, there are s- similarities, but yes, personality traits and likes and dislikes and temperament, there is some major oppositeness going on. And is it
1: is it so opposite that even people outside your family will comment on it? Yes. It is. Like teachers, right? <laughs> Growing up, my sister was a year and 11. Still,
0: she hasn't gotten any older or younger, but she's a year and 11 days older than I am, one grade ahead of me all through school. And I was on the losing side of that opposite-making machine dynamic in that my sister was, like, high-achieving and well-behaved, and I was not. <laughs> I
1: almost can't believe you're Kate's sister. And I was like, yeah, that, that's that's fun for me. So the first thing, first thing I wanted to look at is, so is this really a thing, or is this just something we all like to say and think, but it's not really true? Right. Anecdotal evidence, as we say. Right. Well, it turns out it's it's really true. So in, in the 1980s, there was a doctor named Dr. Robert Plowman, and he studies behavioral genetics. He published a paper that was very influential, saying that we can look at siblings and their similarities in three different ways. Do they look alike? Um, are their IQs similar? And are their personalities similar? And in each of these ways, he compared groups of siblings to each other and to people randomly plucked from the population. So in terms Scientific of- method, I like yes. it, I like it. So in terms of physical similarity, siblings, even siblings who you wouldn't think look that much alike, still look more like each other than they do like random samplings. Makes sense. Makes sense. IQ, same thing. Your your IQ is going to be much more likely to be similar to your siblings and similar to, to some person down the street. Okay your personality traits like how competitive you are how um, you know how outgoing you are things like that are a little more similar than children taking it random from the population but not much more hmm that's interesting so you're only a little more like your siblings than some random so you look like them and you're smarter dumb like them but <laughs> Other things get much more random. But personality is is almost completely separate. And so he sort of had, had research to prove that's true. It's not perception. It is actually true. Then the question becomes, why is it that being raised in the same family pushes children in opposite directions in terms of personality? I want to know the answer to that question, Amy. There are three theories. You are, I love how excited you are. You just love research so much. (laughs) There are three theories and I have to give a, a had tip to uh, an NPR reporter named Alex Spiegel. I found a uh, NPR story where she broke down these three theories. And then of course I went and, you know, I'm
0: only sad for you that this can't involve a PowerPoint because it's audio only. I am going to take this show on the road, people This is <laughs> with fat- your laser pointer Sinating. and be like, you guys four nights only at the Palladium, <laughs> Amy's PowerPoint on opposites. Why are our children such total opposites? Yes, they are. Okay. So before we launch into your three things, let's just go with anecdotal stuff first. Okay. My siblings and I, are all quite tall, except for one of us. There's a runt of our litter. My sister, who was the smarty pants, who everyone compared me to, is smaller than the rest of us. And we're a freakishly tall family. Like my brother's kids, he has four kids, and they're all close to or over six feet tall. They're just very tall people.
1: And so my sister is an opposite in that she's a shorty pants. Psychologists say that that among siblings that are very closely spaced... We both grew up that way and have kids that are that way. I, I mean, I have si- I have a sibling that's 16 months younger than me. I have kids that are 19 months apart. You have- oh, I got you beat. My siblings and I are all ex- almost exactly one year apart. And I have I have sisters who they call Irish twins. That are actually less than a year apart. I have sisters yeah, who are that, the I was same age. Say, full, my sister and I are very close to
0: being. Irish twins are less than a year apart. My sister and I are
1: a year and 11 days. Okay. Yeah, there are, there are six days a year where my two sisters are the same age. <laughs> God bless you, Nancy Wilson. Yes, exactly. So siblings that close in age, there's a process that they call de-identification and that the sort of opposite-making machine really kicks into serious gear among siblings that are that close in age, particularly if they're same-sex.
0: This could have been written about my family and is about us. I mean, yeah. it's exactly... So I have an older brother, older sister, and myself, all born in three years. Older brother, like, very much like first child. You know how they say, I don't know, like, if there's been 45 presidents, like, 35 of them or something are first children. Like, right. he's that guy. He's, like, straight and narrow, high-achieving, high-achieving, Very bright, excellent in school, you know, all that stuff. But then my older sister is also that way. She's straight and narrow, high achieving, went to a great school, great grade, student council. like, and then I was the opposite making machine kid. And I was like, and again, I mean, looking back, like I I made it through just fine, but I was not a great student and I was kind of obstinate in how much I was not about being a great student. Like it, it was definitely something that I almost
1: prided myself in as a youth. You were probably much more likely to de-identify with your very closely older sister than she was to her very closely older Correct. brother. Correct. So since
0: the first one was a boy, she didn't need to de-identify. We're already Second different. Second girl, I had to de-identify from her because I was the third. Yeah. We were functionally triplets,
1: basically. And I have two sons who are 19 months apart, same sex. And so, yeah, they just, you can just count on the younger guy to pick a different lane, everything, pick a different lane. And and I used to say before researching this episode, I was always took great pride in how we had helped them find separate interests and, you know, find their own paths. So they wouldn't be in competition with each, with and each other. And now you're like, rut row
0: scoops, I made a
1: mistake. No, not that I made that a mistake, mistake, but that, that really wasn't, that that was... Totally oh, it wasn't going to yeah. happen anyway. It. Right, right. It would yeah. have happened with or without my intervention.
0: Well, this whole podcast bad. goes back to my lump of clay theory, which is like you imagine getting a baby, like oh, lump of clay for me to form, and then you get a baby, and you're like, oh, this is really nothing like yeah, love of not clay. so much. much more like a human who just does what they want.
1: So, are you ready for the, the the three reasons why psychologists think this might be happening, and they can't? They're actually kind of fighting, and maybe I it's mean, all three. I'm not as ready as you are to tell me, but I'm ready enough. <laughs> I'm going to hit you with the first theory. It's the theory of divergence that comes from Darwin's origin of species.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So Darwin studied uh, on the Galapagos Island. He studied finches. He saw 14 kinds of finches on the Galapagos Island that he originally thought had to be 14 different bird families because they were so remarkably different. Beak size and shape and you know, coloring and whatever. Completely different but then was able to discern that they all came from the same bird. Why? And there has to be a reason that nature would have that happen. It doesn't just happen because. There's a biological imperative for that. So he came up with the theory of divergence, which says that species will evolve to minimize competition. So in other words, these kinds of finches, they started to develop different beak sizes so they could eat different size nuts and seeds and things. So they weren't <laughs> all competing for the same food source. And they weren't obviously thinking about doing this. It just it just happened over time. Right. You go, finches. So Pretty there, clever. There's a psychologist named Dr. Frank Sulloway, and we've actually talked about him before in our birth order episode. He wrote an essay on why siblings are like Darwin's finches. He explains that children also do this too, that they have to evolve adaptively, that they're competing for resources, they're competing for parental attention, siblings will start to behave differently from one another to have enough resources for everybody. Not not that they're thinking about doing that, but if one kid is going to be, I'm good at school, then the other kid is going to pick something else to be good at.
0: Yes. And literally, my mom used to say to me when I was little, you eat like someone's going to take the food away. And I still like, I remember I was dating a guy who was an oldest kid and from a different country where I guess they had better manners than me. But we would go out to dinner. We'd be chatting away. The food would come. I'd put my head down and like eat my dinner and look up. And he was like on his second bite of like slowly considered
1: food. I'm like, I was the youngest of the litter. Like I had to eat fast. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a thing. So you your older sister was smarty pants at school. you were going to you're going to pick something else. Right. I was going to diverge. I was going to be the theory of divergence. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of. I was going to choose
0: obnoxious and surly. (laughs) That's what I went with. Didn't go that
1: well for my mom. (laughs) And look where it's brought you. Look, here I am. So this totally makes sense to me. I think that that okay. is a reasonable explanation for some of it. So the second theory is something that psychologists call non-shared environment. And this gets to the root of everybody always saying, "How could these kids be so different? They grew up in the same house. They had the same parents." Like, you know, that that whole thing we like to right. say that basically we're wrong. That a shared environment only appears shared and it's not. So siblings don't really share the same environment. We just think they do, and that explains the difference. I need more of an explanation. I don't understand. Dr. Salloway would say, like, you can't say that the firstborn child grew up in the same household as the thirdborn child. They didn't because the firstborn child had the experience of being an only, and the third child only ever has the experience of being the third or the youngest. So you, you had the experience of being alone. What do they say? Children are like pancakes? You... You screw up the first one more than the rest. That there's a <laughs> there's a level of atten- positive attention and negative hovering that goes with your first that doesn't go with the rest of the kids. Yes. And we did
0: for the record, do an episode on birth order that has a lot of really interesting stuff. Yes. So go check out that episode as well because we dive really deeply into this topic. And my mom was a therapist and she kind of specialized in birth order. And you like to think like, oh, birth order, it's kind of a made up science. Listen to this episode. it's That stuff is so dead it's on.
1: so real. So we're parenting parenting—we're parenting each child differently based on their birth order or sometimes without realizing it. And also you respond differently. A baby who smiles and, and giggles a lot- is probably going to get more parental interaction than a baby who's not as um, as interactive.
0: Absolutely. And a baby that, a child that mirrors somehow your own negative traits, you're going to react more negatively to. Like there's a lot going on interpersonally with each one of your kids.
1: This goes on a little bit of a depressing, like mother birds pecking the weakest baby bird to death kind of <laughs> stuff.
0: We won't hover too long in the mother birds <laughs> pecking the weakest bird to death. You know, if you have a kid who struggles, you might you it's natural to kind of favor their needs over the needs of your other kids. Dangerous trap, hard not to do, but you almost can't not do it. If you have a kid who has an extremely special talent and that talent is becomes kind of a focus as they, you know, start heading for the Olympics in their sport or whatever, or becomes a fantastical violinist or whatever, that's going to change the dynamic in the family. There's
1: so many factors that makes it a non-shared environment. Right, right. And then you you bring up an interesting one. Like as the kids get older, of course their environments get less shared because I have... One daughter who's at ballet three days a week, and I have one child who's at soccer three days a week, and they're they're in a different environment, literally, and it's, it's shaping them in different ways. So as your kids pick divergent interests and spend more time in these divergent interests, not so shared. Um, and the
0: idea of non-shared environment is not a negative or a positive in this context, right? I mean, it's not saying that non,
1: non-shared non environment is not—it's just an absolute, basically. It's just basically saying the idea that there is a shared environment is a fallacy. Interesting, yeah. So stop wondering how they could have been raised in the exact same environment and be so different it wasn't at all the exact same environment. And there's no
0: goal to try to make their environment more similar. It's just sort of like realize that kids
1: are different because their environment is not as shared as you think it is. Right. This is not coming from the point of view of how to be a better parent. It's just it's just trying to answer scientifically the question of how can siblings be so different. They can be so different because they were raised differently is this argument. The other thing that's a part of this non-shared environment is... The research talks about events that occur in a family, um, you know, a parent's illness, a divorce, a a sibling's illness, and the ages at which the siblings experience those events is also completely different. If your parents split up when you're five versus 12, that's going to shape you completely differently. Absolutely. And there's a million examples of that. And in my own
0: family, my father Is one of six siblings, and they lost their mother in a very tragic way at an early age. And my dad was, I think, out of college at the time, but his youngest sibling was 11. And it's like the the effect that that had on them was understandably quite different. And like,
1: there's a million examples of how things just happen to you differently depending on the age you are. Right. This makes sense too, doesn't it? That your shared environment is maybe not so shared. I mean, certainly for me, my I have, I'm the oldest of six siblings. My youngest sibling is 19 years younger than me. That's not a; it's literally not a shared environment. I didn't live at home anymore when he was born. Um, exactly, exactly. My we
0: have this in my father's family where there's an age gap of clo- close to that, maybe 20 years, and my dad will say to his youngest sister, "Oh, you know, when we were kids," and she always stops him and says, "We were never kids. Huh. When you were a kid." I had I, I was
1: yet to be born for another 16 years. Like it's not we weren't kids. There's no such thing. And we I could see firsthand with my parents. My parents had me in their 20s and and my youngest brother in their 40s. And of course you're a totally a different parent. Um, you know they were they were so laid back with with the youngest with bedtimes and. You know, letting them watch stuff or letting them go places or whatever. It was it was a completely different dynamic that I could see playing out in real time. And not not better or worse, but definitely different. But non-shared, that's for sure. It was hella non-shared. So <laughs> the third theory is something that we actually can do something about. And so I'm going to tell you what the third theory is right after this.
0: people really think about the number of children you have from the wet fresh hell podcast
1: no kids when are you two going to have a baby already don't wait too long one kid when are you two going to have another baby already don't wait too long one boy one girl you must be so relieved one of each you can stop now two girls are you going to try for a boy Two boys. You must be so scared that if you try for a girl, you're going to get another boy. Three kids. Whoa, you've got your hands full there, Mama, huh? Four kids. I think they must be religious. Five kids. The minivan is now full. It's time to stop procreating. Six kids. When does your reality show premiere?
0: This has been What People Really Think About the Number of Children You Have, from the What Fresh Hell podcast. Amy,
1: how great was your Fat Fit Fun Box? It's very fun. I get my second cup of coffee after the kids are in school and I open the box and it's just for me. It's me, 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 my moment. It's just for you. I mean, how often guys do you do something that you can
0: truly say is just for you? This is a super fun box. And even if the kids crowd around, like when we get a box at the door, the kids are like, who's it for? Who's it for? This one's for you guys. It's FabFit mom fun. FabFit (laughs) fun is our sponsor this week. And they are a seasonal subscription box with full size beauty, fitness, wellness, and home products. It retails for 49.99 but always has a value of over $200.
1: It's a lot of stuff when you become a member each season, so four times a year you get a box filled with 8 to 10 things. It's a really wide range of stuff and you can if you want choose which products you get and which add-ons you want or you can just say omakase, surprise me, FabFit Fun Box. <laughs> <laughs> omakase. Oh, <laughs> I like to control most things, but with my FabFit Fun Box I'm just like Whatever you think, FabFitFun, Whatever always you guys out. think. It frees
0: Amy's control freak. I mean, come <laughs> on. What better endorsement do you need?
1: Guys, use the code Motherhood for $10 off your first box at FabFitFun.com. That's FabFitFun.com and use the code Motherhood for $10 off your first box. Okay, Amy, hit us with the third theory. Okay. The third theory theory that psychologists have come up with to explain why siblings in the same family are so completely opposite is comparison. And here's oh where comparison. We're it familiar. It might be our fault a little bit. Okay. A little bit. So, per this argument, families are comparison machines that take the differences between kids and completely exaggerate them and reinforce them. Correct. If not fully create them, but really lean into them. So if one kid is super friendly and the younger sibling is not quite as outgoing, that kid becomes the shy one, even if in the real world, they're not that shy. They're just shy compared to the older sibling that we have this need to go 180 on it and be like, you're such opposites. One is so friendly and one is so shy.
0: Well, yes. And this is, I mean, I was alluding to this when I was making the comparison between myself and my siblings as like my siblings were hyper achievers and I was kind of the, you know, black sheep, the one, you know, the bad student, like, you know, I went to a pretty good four-year college. Like, I, I graduated from high school. Like, I I, do, I did laugh with my mom quite a bit as an adult and just would say, like, every family should have me as the black sheep. Like, I was in any other family, I would have been considered, like, the standout star. But in my family, I was like, oh, only got to be that one test. Like, my, my brother and sister never... They were those kind of kids where they were like, we had to raise the score above a hundred to measure how great they are. Like I, and the fact that I got eighty-fives was like, oh <laughs> God, an eighty-five. <laughs> it was hardly like I was like getting Ds, you know. I mean, I was I was pretty straight and narrow.
1: Right. And so and but we lean into as family units and relatives and teachers and everything, like I said, oh, you're such opposites. You're so different from your sister. I mean, yes, you know, you're maybe 15 degrees rotated from your sister, but but it's it's sort of, you know, blown up. My mother had seven siblings growing up. Man, you my, Wilsons have been, as my grandpa Billy Mack would say, you've been begetting and begetting. There's a lot of us. Um, so that these were the Fergusons. And so my uncle, my uncle Marty, who's now, you know, a grandparent several times over. He was, you know, he was the the quote-unquote bad bad kid of the family. And again, that was relatively speaking, but he would sometimes when my mother was already out of the house, she would, you know, come over to visit and he would be sitting on the porch and and he would tell my mother that like this was it, like this time he was going to St. Michael's School for Boys that it was really <laughs> Nana was, you know, my, my, my Nana, my Nana was just inside packing up and, you know, his, his departure for the school for boys was imminent and he never actually did anything that warranted him having to go to a school for boys, but that was his role in the family that my Texas
0: husband, uh, refers to that as East Jesus junior college. And he's (laughs) like, Oh man, Oh man, I failed this test so bad. I'm going to East Jesus junior college.
1: So there's this, there's a study about kind of exactly what you were saying about like, I'm the dumb one, except not so much. There was a study, Dr. Alex Jensen from Brigham Young and Dr. Susan McHale from Penn State. So they looked at 380 teenage siblings, first and second born. So that's right where I am now with my two oldest and their parents. And they asked the parents which sibling was better in school. And the majority of the parents said the first born was better at school, even though on average the siblings' achievements were about the same. Ugh. That's interesting and kind of disheartening. Kind of, it? kind of disheartening. And, and if you ask these child's parents which child was going to do better in the future, they would say the firstborn one. Oh no! And and that they could track a small but definitive decline in GPA in the following year for the second kid.
0: Oh my God, that is really
1: depressing. Yeah, it is. So so in and. And it's certainly true in my family. Like my my oldest is really smart. His brother is also really smart. But um the oldest has that like hyper drive overachiever, you know, seventh gear he likes to kick things in. Wonder where you got that from. And no idea. Must have licked it off the sticks and stones, as my yeah. grandma yeah. used to say. And and you can you can mistake that for intelligence, which it's which it's not. It's just a I can say it because I have it, a special kind of uh special kind of sickness that you can you can just <laughs> never never stop. But yeah, that you can you can actually affect the outcome of siblings' achievements by your belief system, by the parents' belief systems. And then even effects that are that small, like the next year, it was a sort of a 0.2 difference in a GPA from the year before. But over time, you're going to create different outcomes for your children by believing that these roles exist. I'm I'm going to speak against this because that is my job.
0: Yes, this is probably true. And it's really interesting. And we should lean out of roles. But I hate stuff that is like, Bad things that happen to your kids are your fault because of things you are doing unintentionally. That, this is what I will say in contrast to that. I believe that may be true. I believe that you should be very wary of, like, this one's so picky, he never eats anything. Oh, he's not the good student. You know, yes, don't do that kind of stuff. But the story of my siblings and I is that. I, my brother was kind of a straight and narrow guy, went to an Ivy league school, became a lawyer, had four kids, very young. Those kids are all very high achievers, all going to Ivy league schools themselves. Great. My sister, same thing. Went to college, went to an Ivy league school, chose a little bit more of an artistic career and it's kind of wended her way through that and does extremely well, but is not, you know, a captain of industry. I, I, kind of muddled through the whole way in my own crazy way, ended up going to a decent, great four-year college, and then had this really dopey artistic career where I kind of wended around and uh, sometimes made a lot of money, sometimes didn't make a lot of money. And if you lined the three of us up as an adult and you interviewed each one of us for an hour without just going to total markers of like which better school did you go to or not, I would defy you to define which one of us was the better student in elementary school.
1: Well, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And you couldn't do it. I I don't believe
0: you could. And I'm leaving out my little sister who also went to a great school, slightly artsy, but more businessy career. Like, I don't think that these things matter as much as we think we do. I think all of the stuff is super interesting. And I think the idea that like, if you lean in too much to your definition of your children, you can kind of skew the way they turn interesting to keep in mind, but don't live or die on these dopey statistics. I take the other
1: side of that. Go for it. I think siblings are going to make themselves into opposites and put themselves in the opposite making machine, and that's completely natural. And we're not going to try to stop that from happening. But when that opposite making machine turns one of the siblings into the less than one or the black sheep or whatever, I think there's things we can do to push back against that a little bit. I agree.
0: I agree in the context that that we often in having these conversations imagine that the child is on board a motorboat that you are at the helm of. And I prefer the metaphor that your child is the sailboat and you are the wind. Like you cannot affect that much, you know? I don't mind having this conversation in the context of like the sailboat and the wind, but in the context of like I'm driving them around in a motorboat, I think it gets too oppressive and crazy.
1: Well, after this, I'm going to tell you what Dr. Jensen specifically suggests that you should do for this. Um, he's the guy who did the study on, on how the second-born kid is going to do less well in school because you think they will and what you can do to counteract that. All right. Come save us, in a minute. Okay, so we were talking about Dr. Alex Jensen from Brigham Young, who did the study showing that uh, parents' beliefs about their children can actually influence who the kids become. I don't think that's why the sibling opposite thing happens, but it's definitely a case where we can unwittingly lean into that. Yes. Like you were to use your metaphor about steering the sailboat, we can if we are steering, we can unwittingly be steering the sailboat off course a little bit without realizing that we're doing it. And that's I think that's not good. What he suggests is so he says, it's hard for parents to not notice or think about differences between their children. It's only natural. But to help all children succeed, parents should focus on recognizing the strengths of each child and be careful about vocally making comparisons in front of them
0: that I can get behind is a very simple rule. Try not to vocally compare your kids, but understand that that is going to be something that happens to them.
1: It happens to them all the time. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about this now, how often my kids have heard, even if I'm not saying it, somebody else being like, are these kids, like they're so different and, or everybody's saying it and it's not, and, and nobody's meaning anything negative when they say it. They're, they're different in ways. They each have their strengths, but I, I can think of, of times that I might've said, Oh, this is my, this is my shy one, or this is my, um, musically talented one. Either then that tells the other kids, Oh, you're not the musically, there's only one only room for one musically talented child in this family. That spot's taken. Right.
0: And in my case, like the spot of good student who does great at everything was taken. (laughs) Taken (laughs) twice. It's not, it was taken twice. And so it's not great to be looking for the other of that definition. Right. But I'm also not sure how much that came from my parents and how much it came from teachers slash my own brain. Like, I am always so resistant to those articles that are like, 62 things never to say to twins. It's like, the thing you can't control in the world is what other people say to you, you know? It seems like you've got to try to attack it from the point of view of like, hey, there are good things about being twins and bad things about being twins. And your whole life, you're going to hear these 62 annoying things about being a twin. But... The solution does not seem to be constant articles
1: about 62 things not to say to twins. Because they're probably going to be said to your twins at some point this week.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like kind of the pushback of like, stop telling girls they're only pretty. But my daughter, everywhere she goes, people are like, what a pretty dress. You look so pretty. And I just think... You're going to have to arm her f- for
1: that. Yeah. First of all, is a- that so terrible? But second of all, it, it, you the uh, the problem for that isn't, let me fix the world.
0: Right. The problem is not me going around and being like, you really shouldn't tell kids they're pretty. It's like, <laughs> yes, if we could kind of move away from a society, from valuing women primarily by the way they look, I would be all for it. I would be here for it. But I also have to just take my role as like kind of having the conversation of like "Yeah, pretty is pretty is
1: skin deep, you know, Looking at these three theories, I kind of think it's a little bit of each. That, it, that they are not mutually exclusive. That it's the that it's the baby bird being like, I better figure figure out another kind of nut to eat, so I'm going to go in a different direction. And it's also the uh, non shared environment. We thought it was the same nest, but it, it wasn't really exactly the same nest because there were other birds in it when that bird got there. Right. And uh, and the comparison and the comparison thing that that as they start to diverge for these reasons, that we totally lean into that and and reinforce those rules for well and ill. For sure. And when I started I started this research thinking this wasn't really a thing. I mean before I even started like I'm probably going to find out this isn't really a thing, it's all perception. Okay, so now I see it's 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 a thing. And there are there are reasons for it. But I do think that part of this beware of comparison thing is beware making it so binary. So there a circle has 360 degrees. So if if I have I have one kid who plays three instruments and one kid who plays one. That's not one is musically talented and one is, you know, a dum-dum. That's one's this kind of musically talented and one's, you know, one has an interest in music also. Stop trying to make it so binary. Does that make sense? That's a really
0: good point. It does. And it reminds me of this improv exercise. I teach improv and uh, one of the exercises we do is called Mr. Personality. And it works like this, like someone goes, gets sent out of the room and the rest of the class, 15 people are in the room. And then I walk out and I give the person outside the room, a description. Like, you're jealous. So you're Mr. Jealousy. That person then comes back in the room and answers questions, not about their personality, but just random questions. And it's the class's job to guess the word. So they have to walk like they're jealous, talk like they're jealous, act. Everything they do should just convey jealousy, right? And that's the exercise. And this summer, I've been having a problem with my middle guy about him being extremely... What's the word I'm looking for? If his Mr. Personality word would be like Mr. Greedy, almost like all he wants to do is like go to arcades and win claw machine things. And like all he wants, he's like making his Christmas list. It's July. Like for some (laughs) reason, something has gone off in him where like all he thinks about and all he talks about is stuff. And it's driving me crazy. And whenever I suggest an outing, he's like, I don't want to do that because it's like he doesn't want to go to the park because he can't win a stuffed Animal there out of a claw machine, like, and I am realizing that I have made him into like Mr. Greedy in my head. Like that's the only thing I can say when I deal with him and talk to him. And I have to break that definition for myself because he's a million things, and he's just a little stuck on this thing. But he's also so funny and so cute and so loving and so good with his siblings and some other annoying things. But. I think that's an interesting metaphor for me. Like, sometimes you just see your kids as, like, Mr. Grumpy, Mr. Greedy, and Miss Angelic, you know? And I do that with my kids. That's where, like, the non-shared nest comes in. Like, I'm not seeing them the same, and so... I might be making some of those things worse by only seeing them as that word.
1: There's this um, really hilarious book called Hyperbole and a Half. Have you read this book? Oh my god, I love that book. It was a it was a blog that got made into a book, and it's she does these really crudely drawn cartoons that somehow get at truth better than the most you know beautiful painting could ever. And she has an, a chapter in that book that's about when she was a kid and she liked hot sauce at some point. But she didn't really like she was out to dinner with her parents and she put hot sauce on something and they said, that's going to be too hot for you. And she just out of a need to prove herself took a bite. It's like, no, it's fine. Even though it wasn't turns into like for Christmas, all she gets is pajamas with hot sauce on them and bottles of hot sauce. And then she she gets in this neighborhood sort of contest with some man with a mustache that thinks he can eat more hot sauce than her and like she beats the guy but she's this child that's been painted into this corner of I'm the love hot hot sauce sauce person." person because of you know an offhanded thing she said once and how everybody around around her leans in isn't this amazing that this is a child who loves hot sauce isn't that funny like it is such an
0: instinct that I don't think we're that aware of and like my son and I have just locked horns this summer about like, I can't stand how the only things you want to do involve toys and prizes. And he's just like, I think it's making him worse. Mm. And I don't want my relationship with my son to be like, I think you're greedy. And I don't want his sense of himself to be like, I'm a greedy person.
1: So I guess the takeaway is we have to let their, we have to let their senses of self develop. They're going to naturally diverge. That's good and healthy, I think. But we have to have to not resist the urge to make them into you're the this one and you're the you're the hot sauce girl and you're the you're the greedy one and you're the shy one and you're the smart one we have to resist the the labels and give them give them chances to pivot and i think what's interesting in that which i think we
0: forget a lot in this equation is that i'm going to quote dr phil
1: which i'm very embarrassed to do but well, i'm going to do it anyway you know i'm going to say dr phil like he had his points like in the early days before yeah. it was just all People with I'm not a huge fan, but like every once in a while he gets it
0: right. Yeah, And he always used to say, like, given an opportunity, kids define things as being about themselves. And that I think is a really interesting thing to remember in this whole debate that like even saying like, this is my kid who's really musical. The other kid in the room hears, my mom thinks I'm not musical. Mm-hmm. Even though you're not even thinking about them, like you have to remember the voice in your kid's head that says, I mean, my kids sometimes say to me now, I'm like, wow, I'm really disappointed in the way you behaved at church today, let's say. And my son will say to me, so you think I'm terrible? Mm. <laughs> I'm like, no. I'm just very annoyed that you, you know, punched a kid next to you during the homily. Like, I don't, I, it has nothing to do with thinking you're terrible. But it's it's hard, it's easy to forget sometimes, like, our gigantic and kind of scary role that we have and it's a good thing to keep in mind with this sibling thing too. That it, what you what you say about one the other kid hears as sometimes a negative about themselves.
1: Right. Right. Or or a defining thing about like you so now you have to go over here. That's that that part has been taken. Yeah, it's but interesting. It, it occurs to me when you were saying when you look at your siblings, you and your three siblings now as adults, you can't necessarily tell the one who, you know, was a national merit scholar and the one who wasn't and the one who went here. Um Do you feel like there is a sort of commonality among you and siblings that's become more pronounced now that you live your own lives? Yes. You have totally non-shared environments now, but there's a sort of core thing about you that is similar.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think so. And our identity of as siblings is very much less fraught as adults. Yes. Like, I only celebrate their triumphs, and I only feel bad when they suffer. Like, I, any sense that we had when we were little kids of, like, everything they do good is somehow taking away from the pie that I don't get a slice of. And sometimes when they hurt, I'm like, yeah, I get a break now. I don't know. Like all of that stuff has kind of burned away. And that's why I think getting obsessive about this stuff is, is, is kind of a waste of time and might lead to like that kind of parental stress that I don't like to feed into. But I do think watching your definitions of, oh, these are the smart ones, and this one, eh, she just doesn't quite measure up. Like, you could probably lean out from that
1: quite a bit. The de-identification thing that siblings, especially those close in age, do when they're young is... It's while they're still in the same nest it's some someday that is going to fall away, and you're right you can't you shouldn't stop that from happening it's fine, but you but but be careful of hardening something that your seven year old don't make them into the hot sauce kid for the rest of their lives just because it was a thing they were interested in for a week because their older brother said, "Oh, I hate hot sauce that they they feel the need to my my two boys who were very closely spaced, I mean if the one zigs, the other zags like by definition, you like the giants, I like the jets, you like you like football, I like soccer. Um, but that's something that's, I feel like that's an imperative that's happening right now that might not always be the case. And so I think it won't be don't I think it won't be so don't lock down on it. So don't don't lean into it. Let let it be but let it be let it let it change too. let 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 their course shift.
0: And like we said, in the birth order episode, a lot of these birth order things are there. And like, I think maybe you could as adults pick out our birth order from my siblings and I. And so some of this stuff is a little bit inevitable. So don't spend your life being like, oh my God, I accidentally complimented my violinist in front of my other one. And now they're going to be a mess for life. Like it's not that kind of thing. It's just a kind of big picture issue of, okay, can I adjust some ways the way that I am reinforcing expectations? Can I adjust some way that I don't only say to my daughter, you're pretty and say to my sons, you're smart. Like I can probably make some of those adjustments, but realize that in the long course of life, it's fine. The sailboat's on course. It's all going to be okay. I think that's a good metaphor. Listen, guys, I'm all about my sailboat metaphor (laughs) today. (laughs) So we want to know what's going on with your little ones and how they are interacting with their siblings. And we're going to continue the conversation as always on our Facebook
1: page, which is facebook.com. Forward slash what fresh hellcast. We're also on Instagram at what fresh hellcast and on Twitter at WFH Podcast.
0: And Amy is going to put all this research to good
1: use by putting links. I'm sure you have already like gold plated your links. I have so you know the significance of differences in sibling experiences within the family. Like the 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 all the studies that all of this came from. Um I have I'm gonna put them all up on the show page. Let Guys, me I'm, tell I'm you work so hard for you.
0: Let me tell you, if you have ever thought to yourself, I wanna do a deep, 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 deep dive on why my kids are opposites, Amy is here for you with some crazy links.
1: I forgot to say something earlier that is. I thought this was a really interesting perspective on the opposite thing. Okay, hit me. Can I, can I say it before we go? So I was in China with my two sons last summer. And in China, they have, like, um, like in the Zodiac, they have different times of the year um, that mean different things. Okay. Okay. So um, as it turns out, uh, December 7th, which is my oldest son's birthday, is the day of deepest, deepest snow, Da Shui, July twenty. 20- fourth which is almost my younger son's birthday like a day off is Shu, the day of greatest heat wow that's so, fun so the tour guide that was with us when we were like oh that's cool you're, you're deepest snow and you're greatest heat and he just was sort of like wait a minute your two sons one is deepest snow and one is greatest heat that you have two sons who are total opposites because that's another thing chinese really love is yin and yang um, yes. coming together like that's how you want to you want everything in your life he he couldn't believe That such a family existed in the world. And he just thought my two sons, who are total opposites, was just the greatest honor a parent could have. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, you know, so it's it's okay. It's it's all good. Lean in. Lean in. Lean in. All right,
0: guys. That's our episode on opposites. And we will talk to you next week.
2: Bye.